Welcome to Coast Hills Church Weekend Online Sermon by Pastor Chet Lowe. We invite you to attend our services on Sunday at 10 o'clock a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Our address is 5 Pursuit, Lisa Viejo, California, 92656. We hope to see you soon, and God bless. Well, good morning. So, um, you're probably wondering, why does he not have his Bible? Well, I'm not teaching today. Um, I actually was not supposed to be here today. Uh, I was supposed to be in India, but um, somehow at the border they asked me to turn around. So here I am back amongst with you all and thankful to be with you guys. But we had arranged for one of um, my Patmos alumni to actually come down. He's a senior pastor up on the mountain and teach John chapter 10. Uh, He was a former director of Patmos for many, many years um, and a very, very good friend of mine. Would you please Please welcome Pastor Tanner to the stage. Tanner's a little bigger than me, as you can see. Um, <laughs> wow. <Not really. laughs> kind of maybe fix this thing. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Out, yeah. <laughs> Tanner um, and I have go way, way back, and um, he's not going to tell you this, so I'm going to tell you. Um, he's a trophy of grace. Um, a guy who, uh, do you mind if I just go for it? I don't care. Say whatever. This is a guy who, um, well, if you see his before and after picture, you're just amazed at what God has done in his heart and life. His wife, Liz, is here, their precious baby boy, Jude. Um, He's actually a senior pastor up on the mountain, uh, up at Big Bear. And uh, we had actually decided to have him come down to share here because I was not going to be here. But for me, uh, he's a trophy of grace. Uh, Someone that uh, tried to commit suicide many times, strung out on drugs, gave his life to Jesus many, many years ago. And watching him grow and watching him become the man of God that he is, I know you're going to be blessed. Would you please one more time welcome Tanner. gonna make me cry man I'm not even gonna be able to get through this um, as Pastor Chet said my name is Tanner I'm a senior pastor up at Calvary Chapel Running Springs uh, I want to start off with an apology uh, I'm going to apologize because I actually teach out of the New King James Bible um, and I know you guys use ESV uh, PC he asked me he said hey do you mind using a, an ESV I was like, uh, I don't own an ESV. He's like, you don't own an ESV? You're a pastor. You need to get an ESV Bible. And, and I was thinking, man, I didn't know that was a qualification in the Bible to have an ESV. So I don't have one, but I'm a work in progress. Maybe I'll get one eventually. Um, ESV and New King James, there are a lot of, a lot of similarities. Uh, but if you could just be patient with me as we go through John chapter 10 in the New King James Version. Uh, but before we do, has everybody got Bibles? Yeah? Good? All right, cool. Um, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to bless the message. 
Lord, we come before you, God, and uh, I pray that we would have teachable hearts, humble hearts. God, even if we've heard this passage taught a hundred times that you would teach us something new, refresh us of something old, uh, God, we know that the power is in your word and your spirit. Holy Spirit, you're the self-proclaimed teacher. Uh, God, so we ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us personally, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you'd encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God, and that your name would be lifted up. We pray that you would bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as we look at John chapter 10, we have to look back real quick at John chapter 9 to kind of refresh our memories and recall what Jesus had just done. If you remember, in John chapter 9, he healed a blind man that was blind from birth. And why did he do that? Well, for many reasons, but the main reason Jesus does the things that he does is because he's trying to reveal who he is. He's the one who the prophets talked about, the one who came to heal the blind, uh, to, to bring sight to the blind, to, to heal the brokenhearted, to set liberty to the captive. So the reason Jesus is doing the things that he's doing and saying the things that he's saying is because he wants us to know who he is. It's also important for us to remember why John is writing this book for us. In John chapter 20, I'll read it for you real quick. I think it helps when we study the book of John to filter everything through the reason why John says he's writing this book. He says in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's his heart. That's why he's telling us the stories that he's telling us, so that we would believe in the Son of God and that we would have life in his name. Well, how does that happen? It happens by beholding the glory of the only begotten Son of God. And that's exactly what John tells us as he intros this book in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, we beheld his glory. What brought John to that place of faith is that he beheld the glory of the only begotten Son. So right now, God wants to reveal his glory to us so that we would believe. But what is God's glory? Moses asked God, in Exodus chapter 33, he says, Lord, show me your glory. I, I want to know who you are, who I'm actually supposed to be following. And the Lord said, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, but you can't really handle my glory. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass before you and proclaim my name. And the Lord, it says, he proclaimed his name to Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth. In revealing his glory, God, he revealed his character. He revealed his very nature. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do for us in this text. He's going to reveal his character. He's going to reveal his nature. He's going to reveal himself to be the good shepherd. The good shepherd has so many implications. The good shepherd was a title that the people of Israel had been waiting for for so long. The prophets talk many times about the good shepherd. David talks about the good shepherd. Moses talked about the good shepherd. But one of the most important references to the good shepherd is held in Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, God told Ezekiel to prophesy against the bad shepherds. 
See, there were many bad shepherds throughout the history of Israel, and that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to compare himself to the bad shepherds. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God rebukes the bad shepherds for taking advantage of the sheep, for just using them for their wool and for food, but they don't love the sheep. They don't care about the sheep, and he's not technically talking about actual sheep. He's talking about the people. But then he makes this prophetic promise in Ezekiel chapter 34. If you're in your Bibles, it's verses 22 to 23. We'll just read a few verses here. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 22, he says, Therefore I will save my flock, speaking of his people, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall not feed them and be, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. David's been dead for hundreds of years at this point. He's referring to the Messiah that would come through the lineage of David. This one shepherd who would be a good shepherd is no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump to verse 31. He says, You are my flock, the flock of my pastor. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. He's making reference to himself. God himself would come to be the good shepherd. As David says, the the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. In Psalm 23, this is the shepherd that Jesus is claiming to be. The shepherd that the people have been waiting for for thousands of years. So he's going to make this claim that he's the good shepherd. Why? So we would behold his glory. We would see his nature. We would see his character, ultimately in hopes that we would believe. And there are going to be some in this passage who believe that Jesus is the good shepherd, and there will be others who don't believe that Jesus is a good shepherd. Well, it doesn't really matter how they respond. It matters how you respond. Who do you see him as? Do you see him as the self-proclaimed good shepherd? God in the flesh, the Savior, the Redeemer, or do you see him as something else, something less? A good moral teacher, a a prophet, a, a rabbi, a revolutionary. Because who we see Jesus Christ as will determine how we respond to him, whether we respond to him in faith or disbelief. And that brings me to the title of this teaching, Faith in the Good Shepherd. Faith in the good shepherd. See, faith in the Bible, I think, is different than what we consider faith to be in our American culture. Faith in the Bible is this Greek word uh, referred to as pistis. That's the noun, or pisteo, which is the verb. And it's not talking about an intellectual belief. Like, I believe historically, yeah, Jesus was who he said he was, and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. No, the word is not an intellectual word. The word is actually a relational word. James will tell us later on that even the demons believe that God is God and they tremble, but they don't have a saving faith. They believe intellectually, but they don't have that pisteo, that trust, trusting in God. See, Jesus reveals himself to be the good shepherd so that we will put our trust in him, not just intellectually believe, practically believe, relationally believe. And if we truly trust the good shepherd, guess what? We're going to follow the good shepherd. And that's his heart behind this entire passage. Let's look at it. It's John chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Jesus speaking, Most assuredly I say to you, 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, we have to understand a little bit, once again, of what happened in the last chapter. Remember those religious leaders? They were uh, very mean to that guy and his family who just got healed, that he was able to see once again, actually see for the first time in his life. So Jesus, he's claiming to be the good shepherd in this text in comparison to the bad shepherds in John chapter 9. And then he gives us a little info about shepherding. It's important for us to understand the culture during that time period and how this whole shepherd thing worked. We can't go into it in too much detail, but it helps us understand the context of the passage a little bit. Now, certain times of the year, shepherds would travel. They'd leave their home. Why? Because they needed to find water and grass for their sheep. So they often worked together. Uh, so one shepherd didn't just have to stay up all night. They would put all the flocks together in something called a sheepfold, which was basically a barrier. They could use stone or trees or really anything they could find in the wilderness, if it was in the wilderness, or a town, if it was in the town. And they had this system to set themselves up for success so that they could provide for their sheep, so that they could protect their sheep, and that one of the sheep wouldn't be taken in the night because the shepherd was sleeping. But it wasn't only animals that would take the sheep. He refers to these thieves. See, this sheepfold would often be about six, seven feet high, and if the doorkeeper wasn't paying attention, the thieves would jump over the sheepfold and steal sheep so that they could sell them, so that they could use them. They could make money off of them and even food. So he references these thieves that come to steal the sheep. And then he says once again in verse 2, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd. And the shepherd is going to go through the right way. See, Jesus, he shows us the way to enter into the flock of God. This is point number one. Trust his way. Trust his way. He goes about things in the right way. Not only that, but he is the self-proclaimed way. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim. If he said something like, I am a way, I am a truth, or I am a life, then we'd be talking about something totally different. But he said, I am the only way to get to the Father. Not only is he the way to enter into the flock of God, not only is he the way of God, he shows us the way of God. His way? His way is the way of righteousness, the way of love, the way of forgiveness, the way of grace, the way of sacrifice. And he shows us his way not only so that we could enter into the flock of God, have eternal life with him, but also so that we know how to live here on earth. See, to trust his way is to walk the way that he walked. The text continues, John chapter 10 Verse 3, he says, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. 
So you would have a doorkeeper, one of the shepherds that were chosen out of the group, a trustworthy person, and he would stand in front of the door or lay in front of the door, as we'll get into later. So the doorkeeper, he knows the shepherds, but not only does the doorkeeper know the shepherds of the sheep, the sheep know the shepherds of the sheep. He says, again, verse 3, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. He knows his sheep intimately. He, he knows their names. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, Isaiah says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And this is God speaking through the prophet of Isaiah. God, he calls those who are his by name. He actually calls us by name. And what is he calling us? He's calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's calling us out of misery into an abundant life. See, Jesus not only calls them, but it says that he leads them. He leads them out. Now, this is another prophetic scripture from the mouth of Moses. If you have your Bibles with you, it's Numbers chapter 27. In Numbers chapter 27, we see this was a prayer that Moses prayed. Numbers chapter 27, verse 15, he says, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Jesus is an answer to prayer. Now we see in the context, God's going to raise up Joshua. Joshua's name in the Hebrew is Yeshua. Remember what it means in the Greek? Jesus. Joshua is a type of Christ. He's a partial fulfillment of this prophecy, but Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one who is the good shepherd. He's the one who is going to lead the sheep out. And notice how he leads them out. He doesn't force them out. He doesn't drive them out. They're not cows. He doesn't herd them out. He doesn't have sheep dogs. He's a shepherd. He leads them out. They have a choice to follow him or not. See, he gives us a choice. He gives us the option. He opens up the invitation, but we get to decide whether or not we follow his lead. The text continues, John chapter 10, verse 4. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So as I mentioned, in this sheepfold, you had many shepherds, and sometimes they would get mixed around, uh, sorry, the sheep would get mixed around with other sheep, but those sheep who were called by their shepherd, would come to their shepherd, just as the text says, because they recognized his voice. They knew his voice, and they trusted his voice. And this is point number two. Trust his voice. Trust his voice. His voice is distinct and different from all other voices. It's that still, small voice that says, this is the way, walk in it. And God can speak in various ways. He can speak to our hearts. He can speak through prayer, through worship. He can certainly speak through his word. He can speak through donkeys. He can speak through people. It's not so important 
in the way God is speaking to us. What's important is that we recognize his voice. These sheep, they recognize the voice of their, uh, of their shepherd and they respond to it. Starts with knowing his voice, recognizing it. And then we learn to trust his voice. Why? Because I've never had Jesus lead me astray. I've gone astray on my own. That wasn't Jesus' voice that was following. That was whose voice? My, my own. That was my flesh. My flesh led me to do some horrific things. But the Lord's voice never leads me astray. He, he always leads me to green pastures and still waters. I know I can trust his voice because he's never let me down. But we got to know his voice. we got to trust his voice. It's amazing just as the text helps us understand Sheep actually do recognize the voice of their shepherd. Sheep aren't as dumb as everyone makes them out to be. They're actually pretty intelligent, and they can pick up on tones. They can pick up on names. They can pick up just as you call your dog. They can pick up on those things. If they know their owner, if they know their shepherd, they'll follow him. I've had the privilege to work with sheep on several occasions, and it's true. I've experienced this. Uh, I've had the privilege of taking care of specific sheep at certain times in my life. And I'll tell you, when you love on those sheep and you care for those sheep and you talk to those sheep, those sheep will recognize your voice, and they will follow you. Jesus loves on us. He cares for us. But we got to recognize his voice and then trust it. John chapter 10, verse 6. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Sometimes we just don't understand the voice of the good shepherd. Sometimes we just don't understand why he's telling us to do what he's telling us to do. Lord, it makes no sense. Our priority is not to understand the voice of the good shepherd. It's to hear it and then follow it, whether we understand or not. The disciples didn't understand John chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus says it again. Why? Because he's a loving shepherd. And love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Jesus can deal with our misunderstanding. He can deal with our ignorance. Jesus continued on with them. He continued telling them the same thing over and over and over again until they got it. Sometimes that's what the Lord does with us. He, he, he bears with us. He's not afraid to tell us the same thing over and over and over again. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. You can trust my voice. I'm leading you to green pastures and still waters. And he'll keep telling us that until we finally get it. The disciples eventually will get it. John chapter 10, verse 7 he says, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. When a shepherd would make a sheepfold in the wilderness, they would often either stand or lay in front of the door to prevent the sheep from escaping. Jesus says, not only am I the shepherd, I'm also the door. Just as the shepherd would lay down in front of the door, that's how Jesus opened the door to eternity. He, he, he laid down his life so that we could enter into the fold of God. He claims to be the door, not a door. There is no other door. Not through Buddha, not through Krishna, 
not through Allah, not through Muhammad. He says, no, 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 this is the only door. If you want to go where I'm going, this is the door. Jesus claims to be the door. This has many implications, but one of the connections we see to this door is back in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, you remember uh, uh, Noah and the flood that he went through during that time period. Well, we have to recall why God told Noah to build this ark. It was because God had grace on Noah. And it says in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, he says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's how Noah was able to get on the ark, because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're saved by grace, not of works. Now, if you jump to verse 16, he says here, You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to the cubit from above, and set the door on the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And then we see that there's this door on the ark. And guess what happens? When the flood starts, the door shuts. And what do we have on the door? We have on one side of the door, Noah and his family who are saved, and on the other side of the door, what? Judgment. Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the door to get on the ark. Uh, I'm the door to everlasting life. You either go through this door or you're left out in the flood. You're, you're left out to be judged. But not only is Jesus the door, he's the one that opens the door. This is point number three. Trust in the doors that he opens and closes. Trust in the doors that he opens and closes. It's Revelation Revelation chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, he says, I open doors no one can shut, and I shut doors no one can open. What's the problem with that? Sometimes we want to walk through doors that God closed, and sometimes we want to kick those doors down because we want what's behind that door. He says, no, you don't want what's behind this door. You you don't know what is, is behind this door. There's trouble. There's misery. There's chaos. Only go through the doors that he opens. Don't go through the doors that he shuts. And why does he open and shut doors? Because he wants to protect us. Consider the sheepfold. you got barriers on all sides. There's one door. If the door's closed, you stay in the sheepfold. If it's open, that means the shepherd's going to lead you to green pastures and still waters. But he puts barriers up in our life to protect us. And we see those barriers through his word. He's not just giving us a bunch of commandments because he's mad at us and he wants to control us. No, it's because he wants to protect us. So he puts the sheepfold of protection around us. Then he has a door. And when it's closed, we don't walk through it. When it's open... We're free to walk through it. The Lord is trying to set his sheep up for success. It says in John chapter 10, verse 10. Sorry, verse 8. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. He says here, I'm the door. Here's the sheepfold. When you step out of the sheepfold, when you step out of my barriers of protection, you're stepping 
into enemy territory. And that's why he starts talking about the thief. Don't go out there. There's, there's people that want to rob and steal and kill. There's an enemy out there who wants to destroy you. He sets up barriers so that we can have exactly what he says he wants us to have. That we may have life and have it more abundantly. This word abundant in the Greek is parisos, and it actually means a surplus. He promises a surplus when we keep ourselves in the love of God. Not a surplus of money, not a surplus of material things. He promises a surplus of love, a surplus of joy, a surplus of peace, a surplus of contentment in this life. That's what the good shepherd wants for us. But we got to want it for ourselves. And if we truly want it for ourselves... We'll keep ourselves in the love of God, which ultimately means to be obedient to the things that he's asking us to do. He's trying to get us here to the abundant life. But when we step outside of the love of God, sneak out of the sheepfold, go through a door that he hasn't opened, we're robbing ourselves of the surplus, the contentment, the abundancy that he desires us to experience. Then he says here in John chapter 10, Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In case there's any confusion here in what I'm trying to say, he says, I am the good shepherd that Moses prayed for. I am the good shepherd that David talked about. I'm the good shepherd that led the Israelites through the wilderness. He already told us that he is the bread of life, right? Now he's saying he's the good shepherd. Next week he'll claim to be the resurrection and the life. He makes a statement in John chapter 8 that, that he's existed before Abraham. Not only that, he says, I am, meaning he's claiming to be the great I am, Yahweh. He says, I am the good shepherd. What does it mean to be good? Jesus clarifies this later on in Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 18, if you want to write it down. He says, to be good is to be God. <laughs> We're not good, not one of us, but God is good. So when he claims to be the good shepherd, he's claiming to be the God shepherd. This is a claim to deity right now. Calling himself good is calling himself God. And he's not a good shepherd because he does good things. He does good things because he's a good shepherd. That's who he is. And he can't deny himself. All he wants is good for us. He can't deny himself, but we can deny him. We can deny who he claimed to be. We could deny his shepherdship over our life. But if we de deny him that role of shepherd over our life, you know what we're denying? We're denying his goodness in our life. He says, I am the good shepherd. Then he says, we're going to pick up the pace here. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He says, you know what, I'm going to prove to you I'm the good shepherd. How? By laying down my life. 
by sacrificing myself for you. This is point number four. Trust in his sacrifice. Trust in his sacrifice. See, Jesus... He proved to be the good shepherd on the cross. The hirelings, they're not going to lay down their life for the sheep. They don't care about the sheep. They just want to gain from the sheep. But Jesus, he loves the sheep so much that he was willing to die a brutal death. See, the cross was not just to prove his goodness. It was also to prove his love for us. See, the cross redefined love. And Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. But was the cross enough for you to trust his love for you? Was the cross enough for you to recognize who he is and how much he cares for you? To trust his sacrifice on the cross is to trust his love for us. He says, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it again. He goes on to say in verse 19, Therefore there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings, and many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there was controversy. There was division among the people. That was intentional. Jesus, he says in Matthew chapter 10, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to draw a line in the sand so you'd be forced to make a decision. Who do you say that I am? It's what he wants to do today as well. He goes on. Verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. So the feast of dedication, we can't really get into it. Uh, it's Hanukkah. It, it's uh, Hanukkah. It's a celebration that they still celebrate today. It's when uh, Judas Maccabee uh, took over uh, the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes leading the charge for the Greeks. They desecrated the temple and sacrificed uh, a pig on the altar, and, and they cleansed the temple, and they rededicated it. That's why it's called the Feast of Dedication. John chapter 10, verse 23 And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. People say, hey, hey, tell us plainly, are you really the Messiah? And he's like, you dummies, have you not been listening to me? I just told you I'm the great I am. I'm Yahweh in the flesh. I am God. I'm the good shepherd. Again, I'm the bread of life. They weren't hearing him. They weren't listening to him. Not because he wasn't being clear but because they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to submit to Jesus Christ, just as people don't want to submit to God. They had hardened their hearts against the truth of God's word. If they were listening to what he was saying, they would see clearly that he's making so many prophetic claims to fulfill that role as Messiah. John chapter 10, verse 28. 
And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What's he saying? You can be secure in your salvation. You can't lose it. He says, I and my Father are one. This is crucial. He's not just saying, me and my Father are of the same mind. Me and my Father are of the same purpose. He's saying, me and my Father are of the same divine nature. It's one of the things that John is trying to get across to us throughout this book. John chapter 10, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself God. They they recognized what he was saying. Jesus was making a claim, as I mentioned, to deity, that he was God in the flesh. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross because he started a revolution. He died on the cross because the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy, that he being a man made himself equal with God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law... I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I and I in him. What's his argument? Listen to what I'm saying and look, in and look at how I'm following through with my works. My, my, my works are proving my words to be true. The proof is in the pudding. We can trust his word and we can trust his works. That's point number five. Trust in his word and his works. Trust in his word and his works. They already said back in John chapter 7 verse 45... We've never heard anyone speak like this man. We've never heard anyone teach like him and makes the, make the claims that he's made. He, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the great I am. He claimed to be the Messiah. He also claimed that he was going to die on the cross and rise again the third day. And then guess what? He pulled it off. Who do you know who can pull that off? Just earlier in John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life, I lay it down, that I may raise it up again. It'd be one thing to say that. It's another thing to do it. I had a guy a couple months ago tell me that he was Jesus, okay? I met this guy at an outreach, and he said, it was like cloud, you were in the mountains, and he says, I'm Jesus. Remember, Jesus said he was going to come in the clouds of heaven? You ain't Jesus. <laughs> Let me see your scars. You know, we had this conversation. I tried to be gracious with him, but he robbed me up a little bit. Must admit, But he claimed to be Jesus, but there's nothing that he did to prove he was Jesus. He wasn't Jesus, okay? (laughs) But he made the claim. Jesus not only made the claim, but he backed it up with the miracles that he performed. Specifically, the miracle on the cross. Let me show you something real quick. John chapter 21, verse 25. This is one of those verses in scripture that just fascinates me. I'm like, I wish I knew all the things that John was talking about here. Look what he says. And there are, all, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. He says, man, I'm just giving you a piece. He said, Jesus has been doing things since the beginning of time. He created time. There's so many things that Jesus has done. 
We couldn't fit it. We wrote them in books. We couldn't fit it in the earth. Jesus, he's fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And when you do the math, that's mathematically impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. He makes it so clear. Listen to what I say and listen to how I prove what I'm saying to be true. Look at the miracles. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. This is where we'll close. John chapter 10, verse 39. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And when he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed, then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. John didn't do any miracles. Look at what Jesus is doing. Look what it says in verse 42. And many believed in him there. This chapter ends with both disbelief, people trying to kill Jesus, and belief. See, Jesus... He did the things that he did, performing these miracles, and said the things that he said so that we could behold his glory, so that we could see who he truly is, that he is the great I am, that we could behold his character, that he is loving, that he is holy, that he is perfect, that he is gracious and forgiving. He truly is who he said he was. But me telling you that only does so much good. He said the same thing to the Pharisees. He said the same thing to a lot of the Jews. Some responded in faith. Some responded with a lack of faith. So he puts it out there on the table. This is who I am. I'm the good shepherd. I offer abundant life now and eternal life later. But I can't, I'm not going to force you to believe. That, that's your response to who I say I am and how I follow that up with the works that I perform. So we all get to make the choice. Do we truly have faith in the good shepherd? Not just intellectually, but that relational word, that word pistis, that word trust. Do we trust him? Because if we trust him, we're going to follow him. If you would, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are the good shepherd and you lay down your life for your sheep, God. <laughs> and you offer so much. You offer eternal life in the future. You offer abundant life now. And that abundant life, God, it looks like living in the barriers that you put in our lives, the living by your word. Again, not because you're angry with us and you want to control us, but because you love us and you truly want us to experience contentment in this life. God, so I pray with that invitation that you offer us that we would respond to it, not just once, but daily. God, we would appreciate who you are. We would put our trust in you and we would follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen.